morning again. If you have your Bibles with you, we have two passages we'll be looking at this morning. As you see on the screen, Genesis chapter 14, verses 17 through 24, and then Hebrews chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. I have always wanted to go to the baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown, New York. It was on June the 12th of 1939 that the first induction ceremony was taken there as they had the first inductees into the Hall of Fame. On the website, I found this quote. It says, quote, there is no off-season at the Baseball Hall of Fame and Museum, end of quote. I like baseball, one of the few sports I can still afford to go watch. I like keeping up with it, favorite players. I like to see how baseball has evolved over the years. And just to follow some of the guys that I have followed with the Texas Rangers, how they get started, where they play high school ball out, so on and so forth. Now, some of you... I mean, Hall of Fame might not be a thing that you're really interested in. Uh, Tim, I'd rather not spend my time in the Hall of Fame. But I found some unusual Hall of Fames that might spark your interest. And if you're curious, I can show you the source where I got these from already. Idaho has the Potato Hall of Fame, which makes sense, right? Idaho potatoes. Las Vegas has the pinball Hall of Fame. Now, some in this room are too young. I don't know if they make pinball machines anymore. I spent many quarters playing pinball. Pennsylvania is the home to the Robot Hall of Fame. Wisconsin has the Science Fiction and Fantasy Hall of Fame. Now, here's one I want to go to. I don't care how old I am, and many of the kids in here, I guarantee you want to go to this one. In New York... There is the National Toy Hall of Fame. Now, who want to go check that out? In Long Beach, Washington, there is the World Kite Museum and Hall of Fame. Now, listen, I'm not making this up. In Chattanooga, Tennessee, there is an International Towing and Recovery Hall of Fame. Who knew there was a Hall of Fame for tow trucks? But apparently, there is. It is amazing. Who said that? Coming from the sound booth way back there. Now, to be in the Hall of Fame, you have to be the best of the best of the sport or the discipline which is being recognized. And to be the best, we look to the best. Now, Michael Jordan may be able to help me with a horrendous jump shot. Michael Jordan, a wonderful athlete. Air Jordan, as he was called, he would jump from the top of the key and would not touch ground until after he threw the ball through the hoop. But... To be honest, no disrespect to Michael Jordan and what he's done, but I have a bigger problem than that. I have a much bigger, bigger need than, than learning how to do a jump shot, which, by the way, I don't think I could ever jump that high to begin with. I need someone to help me navigate through life each day, and I would suppose that you have that same need. We need someone to help us. To show us how we can live in a way that honors God. 
to help us be better people, to help me be a better husband, a better father, and a better grandfather. If there was a hall of fame for spiritual living, we could find somewhere, someone in that list to help us. Now, Hebrews 11 comes close to that. It shares a few names that are considered to be worthy. Examples. For example, Abraham. In verse 8 of Hebrews chapter 11. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed God by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance, and he went out, listen to this, not knowing where he was going. Oh, Larry, could you imagine telling your wife, Miss Beb, pack up the house, let's sell what we don't need, we're leaving. Where are we going, Larry? I have no idea. God told me to head west, we need to head west, he'll tell us when to stop. What are you going to do for a living? I have no idea what we're going to do for food or lodging. God said, go, we're going. I wonder what Miss Bez's response to that would be. Are you kidding me? Are you sure you heard him right? But that's what Abraham did. You see, faith in God and obedience to God are imperatives in our lives. And Abraham lived that out. He's regarded as the father of the nation of Israel. He is a prime example of someone who lived by faith. And as you look at chapter 11 in Hebrews, Abraham and his wife have more verses dedicated to him, or dedicated to them, excuse me, than any other person mentioned in that chapter. There are eight verses in Hebrews chapter 11 that Abraham and Sarah are the subject are. They're the subject of those verses. Uh, the first person that even comes close is Moses. He has six. And then the rest of the examples only have two. So he is looked at as a great example of a man who is faithful to God. So how important is faith? Well, Hebrews 11.6 says this. Without faith it is impossible to please him, to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who who seek him. If you don't have faith, you cannot please God. That's not my words, that's the words of Scripture. Now as I think of that, could it be that a lack of faith is one of the main reasons we struggle to honor God with at least 10% of all that he's entrusted to us? As Christ followers, as Christians, we struggle more with depending upon God, having faith in God with our finances than we do with our eternal destination. In other words, we trust God with the most precious thing we have, our very soul. But when it comes to finances, hold on God, I think I know better, let me take care of it. It's kind of our attitude. We struggle with it. And this series that we're doing is a biblical message that calls us to be a people of faith. And because the Bible has so much to say about finances, and, so, and because the subject of economics is always on the mind of working people like us, this series is both biblical and relevant. And I hope that's true of all my messages. I want to be true to Scripture, true to the text, but then comes the so what question. How do you make application? I will tell you, that is the hardest thing to do. Find out the truth, and then how do you apply it to the people to which you are speaking? And the title of this series, as you well know, is 10% A Call to Biblical Stewardship. Principle one. What was the first principle? Do you remember? 
God is the owner of everything, period. The second principle naturally flows out of that. We own absolutely nothing. After all, if God owns everything, then I don't own anything. Then we come to the principle three today. Honor God with at least the first 10%. By faith in God alone, we stand on the word of God. And as we honor God with at least the first 10% of all the resources he has given us, will give us, whether our times are good, times are bad, or times are uncertain, we always need to honor God with at least the first 10% of everything he has given us. Now, there's two reasons why we should always honor God with at least the first 10%. The first one, faith pleases God. Faith pleases God. We just read about that in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, just a few moments ago. We looked at Abraham and his example of a faithful man. Abraham placed his faith in God when he told him to leave, even when he didn't know where he was going. Another thing that Abraham did, he put his faith in God when God told him he was going to have a baby when he was 100 years old. If you remember that story, Sarah's response was to laugh. Ha, 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 ha. You think I'm kidding? Go back and look up the story. He placed his faith in God when God told him to sacrifice Isaac on Mount Moriah. Isaac, his son, looking him in the eye. Where is the sacrifice at? Father, God will provide. Abraham was regarded or considered to be a friend of God. James chapter 2, verse 23. Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, as he was called the friend of God. Now listen, when we are faithful, when we are faithful people, we are friends of God. Think on that for a second. But God's much more than our friend. I hope you understand that he's our God. He's our Savior. He's our Redeemer. He's our Creator. He's our Sustainer. He, he is everything. But when we're faithful, we are his friend. And your friendship with God should make you have greater faith, even enough faith to give God at least the first 10% of everything he's given to you. The kind of faith that pleases God believes what? That God is who he says he is and that God can do exactly what he says he can do. Your faith that pleases God is you believe what what God says he is and he will do what he says he can do. If you believe God is who he says he is, then you believe God enough to honor him with at least the first 10% of everything he's entrusted to you. Furthermore, if you believe God can do everything that he said he can do, it's impossible for you not to honor God with at least the first 10%, everything he's entrusted you with in your life, in your past, in your present, and in your future, because you understand one thing, faith pleases God. If you believe God is who he is, who he says he is, he can do all things, there should be no problem for us to give back to him 10% of everything he's given us. The second reason it's important for us to always honor God, to give the first 10%, is because faith gives to God at least the first 10% of everything. And this leads us to our first passage, Genesis chapter 14, starting in verse 17. 
Then after his return from the defeat of Caledomora and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shavah, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was a priest of God Most High. He blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor or creator of heaven and earth. And be And blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. He gave him a tenth of all. That's Abram giving Melchizedek a tenth of all. Then the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give the people to me and take the goods for yourself. Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have sworn to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. Thou will not take a thread or a sandal thong or anything that is yours, for fear you would say, I've made Abram rich. I will take nothing except what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me, Adner, Eschol, and Memory. Let them take their share. Abraham introduces the first ten principle we call the tithe in that text. Now people say the tithe was part of the law. And because we're under grace and not under the law, it's no more relevant to us. However, this event we just read about takes place hundreds of years before the law was even given. The tithe predates the law and was incorporated into the law. In Genesis, like we just read about, the tithe was initiated before the law. You find in Leviticus, the tithe was codified under the law. In Malachi, the tithe was restored following the exile. And in Matthew and Luke, the tithe was reinforced by Jesus. For example, in Luke chapter 11, verse 42. But woe to you Pharisees, for you pay tithe of mint and rue and every kind of garden herb, yet disregard justice and the love of God. But these are things you should have done without neglecting the others. You can also find that in Matthew chapter 23, verse 23. But the point being, Jesus mentions the tithe. It was before the law. It was codified in the law. In Malachi, it's taken back up. And it's still going on in Jesus' day. And in Hebrews, the tithe was universalized through Melchizedek. Now Hebrews 7, 1 through 10, we'll read in just a moment, recalls that meeting that Abraham and Melchizedek had back in Genesis chapter 14. If you go back to Genesis chapter 14, verse 1, you will see that Abraham gathers a force of fighters to bring back his relative Lot. They defeat their foes. They take a large haul of spoil. And on their way back, Abraham encounters Melchizedek. The interesting thing is that here we have an event that happened in the Old Testament. And we have a New Testament writer making remarks on exactly who Melchizedek is and what was going on. Now, in context of Hebrews, the writer is talking about Christ being a priest in the same way as Melchizedek was. But listen to what he says. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham as he is returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. We just read about that in Genesis chapter 14. To whom also Abraham appointed a tenth part of all the spoils, which first of all, by the translation of his name, 
king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, which is king of peace. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, he remains a priest perpetually. Now observe how this great man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the choicest spoils. And those indeed of the sons of Levi who received the priest's office have commandment in the law to collect a tenth from the people, that is, from their brethren, although these are descended from Abraham. But the one whose genealogy is not traced from them collected the tenth from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promise, or the promises. But without any dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater. In this case, mortal men receive tithes, but in that case, one receives them, of whom it is witnessed that he lives on. And, so to speak through Abraham, even Levi, who receives tithes, pays tithes, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Now, I want you to know, I don't have enough time to really pull that verse apart, but one thing I want you to see that before the law, you have the tithe. After the law is given, Jesus on the scene, you have the tithe. And now you have a New Testament writer talking about Abraham giving the tithe. The tithe is there. It's in Scripture. We have to deal with it is the point I'm trying to make. And because it tells us in Hebrews chapter 7 that Melchizedek didn't have a father or mother. There's no genealogy. We don't know exactly where he came from or who he is. Most of your biblical scholars will say he is a type, T-Y-P-E, of Christ. In other words, this is an appearance of Jesus before he came incarnate and came in the manger in Bethlehem. This is a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ in the Old Testament. The same thing they say about Asaph, Meshach, and Abednego. That was an appearance of Christ in that furnace with them. Some say it's angels, some say no, it was an appearance of Christ. But to the point we're making about the tithe, if you look at Genesis chapter 14, you didn't turn around and look at Hebrews. By the way, that's a great biblical way to interpret Scripture. You come off of the Old Testament Scripture, does it mention in the New Testament anywhere? And you run to that New Testament passage to see how they handle it. Well, we see Abraham's immediate response when he comes upon Melchizedek. He bows down and he worships. He gives a tenth, a tithe the first tenth or ten percent of the spoils, and determined not to retain anything else except what his soldiers had consumed on their journey and what was due his fellow military leaders. Abraham worshipped, and part of that worship is giving of the tithe. There it is. The tragedy today at many churches is that the offering is an afterthought. A service transition or seen as an interruption. In other words, most churches, when I say Southern Baptist churches, you come in, you have a welcome, you have three songs, you have an offering, you have special music, you have the message, you have invitation, closing prayer, you go home. Don't look at me like that. Most of your churches go like that. Am I right? All right. Everything that we do is worship. Some people view the song service as a warm-up before the preaching of the Word. No. Singing praises to God is a form of worship. Just as important as the preaching of the Word 
or giving back to God. So here in Forest Brook Baptist Church, how do we see the offering? And the way we treat it is an indication of how we do worship. I mean, how can I hold back anything from God when I'm praising him for my salvation? It doesn't work like that. Now, I know we don't put the offering plate out since COVID-19. There's three ways you can do it, through mail, the back there in the box, or online. But you know, some church traditions, they put it right up here up, up front. And the music begins to play, and people come down as family or individuals and give their tithe and offering. And as a side note, I've been in a service like that where the pastor went down and said, someone's holding back, let's go again. I imagine some of you would have words with me after this service if I did something like that. But the point being, it's, it's, a point, it's, a, it's a form of worship. Those who walk in faith give a worshipful offering. The faithful give at least the first tenth of everything God's given to them. Why? Because they want to worship the Lord and honor Him as the most important thing in their life. Now, I have to be cautious here. You can get very legalistic with this, all right? Okay, I've worshipped, I gave my tithe, I've done this, I've done that. And you go, what I call checklist theology. No, it's always driven by the heart. The Old Testament, the Ten Commandments tell us what we should do and not do. And not one of us in this room, or listen to me over the internet, anybody on the planet can keep those Ten Commandments. We just can't do it. it. Shows us a need for the Savior. The Savior came, the law hasn't changed, but he provides forgiveness through his shed blood. And when we become a Christian, what happens? We're given the Holy Spirit. We get a new nature, a new heart. And now we embrace the things of God. So everything's about the heart. Don't think, oh, I'm going to get myself in trouble. Don't think that if you were to give a $10,000 gift today that God's going to somehow bless you in a special way. If you're giving it begrudgingly or you're expecting something in return. It doesn't work like that. It has to come from the heart. It has to come from the heart. You're singing, you're giving, you're praying. Everything that you do has to come from your heart. I can look at you and I can judge, I, I can make assumptions, but I don't know your heart. Only God knows your heart. I say it once, I'm going to say it again. God doesn't need your money. After all, He owns everything anyway. He wants your heart. That's what He's after. Now, three things happen when you practice tithing, giving the first tenth to the Lord. The first thing that happens is that you're putting God first in your life. Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 23. You shall eat in the presence of the Lord your God at the place where he chooses to establish his name, the tithe of your grain, your new wine, your oil, and the firstborn of your herd and your flock. So that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. Now, the Lou Living translation, the last part where it says, you may learn to fear the Lord your God always, renders it this way. The purpose of tithing is to teach you always to put God first. That's what the writer is telling us in Deuteronomy. God wants you to fear him. He wants you to put him first in your life. And the tithe is teaching us to do that. So when you practice tithing, you're putting God first in your life. The second thing that happens... You're setting your heart right before God. Matthew chapter 6, verse 21. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. 
You want to know what were close and near to your people's heart? Look at their checkbook. Look at their checking account. What do they spend their money? What do they spend their time? Can I just make a side note? I'm trying not to chase a rabbit here, but you know what's even more precious than any financial resource you have, more than money, is your time. Time is so precious. That's the reason why an employer will pay you so much per hour for you to spend that hour working for them because once you spend that time, it's gone. You can't get it back. It's gone. Forever. And we're only given so much time on this earth. The third thing that happens, so you put God first in your life, you get your heart right with God, and or actually you setting your heart right before God, and the third thing you're doing or you're positioning your life to be blessed by the Lord. And you've heard this before, Malachi 3.10. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house, and test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. Let's go ahead and test me. Now, he may, he's not going to give you what you want. He'll give you what you need. What did Jesus say? Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added unto you. He points to creation, the sparrows and the lilies, how God takes care of them. And if I'm a good father, when my girls were hungry, I'd give them bread to eat. I wouldn't give them the stone. So how much more will my heavenly father take care of me when I ask for it? See, tithing is a tangible way to express your love for God. It's also a visible expression of your trust in the invisible God. The greatest decision, please hear me. You heard nothing else this morning, hear this. The greatest decision you can make for your financial blessing and your security is the tithe. Giving the first tenth of all God has given you which, by the way, is not yours anyway. He's not asking for a lot. He's asking for 10%. It all belongs to God anyway. Not just 10%, but all of it. 100% of everything you have belongs to him. You may argue with God and say, well, I can't afford to tithe. And one of those many people have learned this lesson the hard way. I will tell you, you cannot afford to tithe. God will take care of you in a much greater way than Wall Street, the Dow Jones, your parents, your children, your employer, and yes, even United States government. He'll take care of you better than any of those. You know why? Because everyone and everything will fail you at some point. But Jesus will never fail you. I try my best not to make people upset, but even myself, as your pastor, I will fail you. I'll make you upset at times. I'm a sinner saved by grace just like you are. But there is one that will never fail you. He gave his all, 100% for you, on the cross when he died for your sins. He died in your place. How can you try to debate if you should tithe or not to the very one who laid his life down for you? 
When you're talking to the very one, you trust with your very soul that He will take you to heaven when you die. How can I argue with that? I can't. He gave literally everything. You can trust Him with your soul. You can trust Him in the little things of this life. You can trust Him for your daily needs as you practice giving tenth. 10% right back to him as an act of worship and gratitude. (laughs) You know, I guess my first question as we wrap this up, have you given your life to the Lord? We call this an altar, not because we sacrifice animals on here, because we lay down our lives here. We lay down everything we have here to him. That's why it's called an altar. But have you given your life to him? Have you trusted Christ with everything that you have? As a way of illustration, bear with me. We're on an airplane. Things are going well. The captain comes over the intercom and says, Ladies and gentlemen, I'm very sorry to tell you, we are going to crash. We've done everything we do in the cockpit. We're going to keep her in the air as long as we can, but the plane will crash. There's no doubt. And if you're on board when it crashes, you will die. That's the way it is. But the good news is we have parachutes for everybody. So the flight attendant brings you that parachute. What would you do with that parachute in that moment? Would you stick it in the overhead bin? Would you put it underneath your seat? Would you put it on your lap? Or would you put it on so tight, perhaps you couldn't feel your arms and legs after a while? And you wouldn't care if you're uncomfortable because it's not there to make your life more comfortable. It's there to save your life because the plane is going down. Then the time comes. Drops to 10,000 feet. It's time to go. They open up that door. And you're looking out. And you feel the wind rushing by. And you look down. And you're scared. But you know this plane is going to crash. And if you stay in the plane, you're going to die. And you have this parachute. So you jump. And as you're going down through the air, you're free falling. You realize in that moment, there's nothing you can do to stop your fall. You can flap your arms, you can sing, nothing's going to stop you because of an absolute truth, the law of gravity. So you can prove there's absolute truth. Gravity is everywhere on this earth. No matter where you're at, if you jump off the roof, you're going to plummet to the ground. That's an absolute truth. But then you remember about the parachute. And you pull that ripcord. You're putting all your faith and hope that that parachute is going to open up that canopy. And you come down to earth safely. And you land just with a it's not the old fuzz like there used to be back in the day. You just kind of land real soft, not a scratch on you, and you're alive. What a story to tell, and I'm sure your heart's probably beating like crazy. But you survived. Now bear with me. That plane is like this earth. Judgment is coming. Make no mistake about it. Judgment is coming. All of history is going in the direction 
leading to, pointing to. God is guiding all history into the moment when he'll send his son Jesus Christ back. There's also something, this is going to happen, we have no control of, a time of my physical death. For every heartbeat that I have, every breath I draw in, I draw closer to that time. There's, I can do things to take care of my life, to stay healthy, and we should be a good steward of the life God has given us, but we can't stop it from happening. It's going to happen one day. One of those things is going to happen. And there's nothing we can do to stop it. Just like that parachute was our only way out of that plane to survive, Jesus is our only way out. And to trust him with everything is like you trusted that parachute. There is nothing you can do, nothing you can do that will save your soul forever other than the precious blood of Jesus Christ. It's the way it is. We are saved by grace through faith lest anyone should boast. And we come to that knowledge that my very life belongs to him. And I understand that God is the owner of everything. I own absolutely nothing. In light of those three statements, how can I hold back from a God who's poured out so much? God loves a cheerful giver. He wants you to give back because you love him and you trust him. And I'm telling you, he is faithful. He's always faithful. I'll conclude with this statement. 2020, who ever forget that year, or more or less 2021, look at us. We're still here. Our doors haven't closed. We haven't quit ministering. We have kids coming on Wednesday. We have people visiting our church. We had baptism just three weeks ago. And perhaps more on the way. He is showing us if we trust him, he is faithful. But we have to take that step of faith. Is it easy? No, it's like jumping out of that airplane. I have never skydived. I think I'd like to, but I think someone would have to push me out. As I, I mean, it's one thing to talk about. It's another thing to be standing there looking out the plane. You understand that, right? It's easy to talk about having faith in God when you're sitting here in a nice, comfortable pew in a room full of the Christians. Hey, that's wonderful. Amen. It's another thing. And God calls you out of your comfort zone, like he did many of those missionaries. But you're going to have to go overseas to be a missionary. It happens when you walk out that door. And many of you in this room work at the school. Huge mission field at the school. But guess what you also find at school? Other believers to bring you encouragement when you need it. What is God laying on your heart this morning? The altar is open. I'm here to pray with you. But please, please listen to God. I know that things are getting crazy in our country. And I know that the financial resources weigh heavy on our minds how things are going to happen. But I'm telling you, Trust God. He's still in control. Nothing surprising him. He's waiting to see if we're going to be faithful to his calling on our lives as individuals and as a church. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the many examples that we find like Abraham and Sarah. Amanda 
You called out. He didn't know where he was going, but he followed your direction where you called him to go. And Father, I know that many in here are feeling your voice even now speak to them. They're not sure if they're ready. They, they don't even know they have the right resources or equipped to do so. But Father, we know that you equipped the called. Father, you want us to step out in faith. We might be a little scared and apprehensive, but God, you're still calling us to trust you. And Father, we trust you with our very souls. How can we hold anything back from you? And I trust, I pray, God, if anyone in this room has never trusted you, your Son as our Lord and Savior, that this will be the day they give their lives over to you. And that, Father, we will lay everything down because we want to honor you and worship you because, dear God, you're the most important. You're the most important thing in our lives. Your creator, your sustainer, your redeemer. Our very breath, dear God, you are our life. Father, I pray that we respond in a way that would honor you and bring glory to your name. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Would you stand with me, please?